0: is correct that about works out so last week in kind of our abbreviated service uh, we we really just talked about the first four verses of chapter three we didn't really dig much into it outside of that at the time and all that but we talked about how those four verses kind of serve as a transition between some of the ideas paul's talking about in chapter two and the ideas he's going to talk about in chapter three because if you remember at the very beginning, of the, uh, when we kind of first started our study, we had that outline of Colossians that we threw up on the screen. And it talks about how in the first couple chapters, Paul really lays out his, his theology. And in this case, his theology on Christ, talking about who Christ is, creator of the universe, savior of our sins, redeemer of mankind, all that, obviously. All those things we'd be familiar with. And then as he shifts here, he starts talking about, so why does all that matter to us? What does that have to do with what's going on here? And uh, as, as you might remember, when we talked about this in his in his letter, the Colossian church was dealing with something that uh, you know the the commenters or scholars have called the Colossian heresy, which is really just this idea that uh, Christ and Christ's teachings alone were not sufficient; that you needed Christ and certain uh, ascetic principles, or you needed Christ and certain Jewish traditions, or you needed Christ and Christ and Christ and all these kind of different teachings. And we talked about how they were really influenced by the 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 things going on in their region, uh, Colossae, a region of of the Roman Empire, a region where these churches were at, (coughs) and so that was kind of corrupting this theology, and so they they had this Christ and view, and so Paul is kind of correcting that, and that's why he lays out why Jesus is so important. That's why he lays out Jesus is all we need, Jesus is, and Jesus is, Jesus is in that uh, section of chapter one. So we're getting to the more the, the uh, application part. If that was kind of all the theology, we're shifting to the application part here. And you'll notice in verse 5 of chapter 3 is really when this transition begins. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about all those. Uh, he, he kind of condemns these different false teachings and the false practices that would fit in line with those things we were talking about. Um, Towards the end of chapter 2, he starts condemning those things. And he uses these phrases like, you know, false humility, false spirituality, and talks about how those are all false. And he's going to switch to, and this is why, this is how you should be living. You know, this is, Christ is this way, so don't live this way. Instead, live this way. And you'll notice in verse 5, really through, I'd say at least verse 10 or 11... He's kind of just listing behaviors and things and laying out uh, an outline for Christian lifestyle. And in chapter 4, he'll kind of continue this. And uh, just just kind of fitting with, like I said, the application part of the book. So uh, his tone will kind of change here for the rest of our study. And you'll no, you'll just notice that as you read, that it, it reads a little differently than chapter 1 and chapter 2 in that regard, just in terms of the, the content. So... I guess before we get too far along here, uh, we'll back up just a little bit. Someone read for us verse one through four, and just kind of remind us what we've been talking about. Uh, someone read for us verse one through four of Colossians three.
1: If then you <clears throat> if then you were raised right with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory.
0: Thank you. So, he says, if you were raised with Christ, which is really just kind of an expression. He's not saying, like, are you or are you not. But he's really just saying, if you were raised, then you should live this way. So, again, um, already seen kind of an emphasis on Christ. And then he says, we talked about this a little bit last week, but he says, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. And you'll notice that uh, right afterwards, or as we begin to talk about this, is he starts with your mind. He starts with your perspective. And he says, you know, when he says, seek the things which are above, the next thing he says is set your mind on things above. And the section we're going to look at tonight, he's going to talk about our actions. So how do we set our mind on heaven, or how do we see things in a heavenly way or how do we view things the way christ would view them well by setting our mind on things that are above how do we do that by acting in these ways that he's going to tell us to read in the next few verses something uh something like, i we didn't get to last week but something else i wanted to say just on those those first few verses of the chapter is if, you, if you've ever heard any sort of like self-help, uh, motivational, inspirational speaker lot, they talk so much about mindset, right? about manifesting something, or that if you, you, know, if you think on something, you can, they kind of almost, some of them will play this idea, like if you think on something or not, you can will it to existence, and I'm not gonna go that far. But any of those people who talk about if you wanna change something, or if you wanna prove something in your life, they talk about this idea that, well, you gotta think on it, and you gotta really be thinking about it in, in all of, uh, in, in kind of the philosophical idea of that. That principle is really the same thing Paul's talking about here in Colossians. And, and that idea that he says, set your mind on things above. Well, if you want to live as Christ lived, if you want to be a Christian, it starts by changing your mind. It starts by changing your perspective. It starts by changing your outlook. Um, there's a guy named Dallas Willard. He's kind of one of those kind of people, inspirational, motivational type people. He said, one of the simplest things that is completely within your control is what you choose to think about or dwell on. And... Uh, if we just think about that, about what we put into our mind or what we choose to let occupy our mind, that that is going to influence how we act, how we treat other people, what our relationships look like throughout the day. And so as we get through verse 5 through 10 and we start talking about all these specific actions that Paul kind of calls out, uh, know that at the top of this section, he really starts with your, your mindset, with your perspective, with your attitude. Um, and you'll also notice that by by kind of implication verse two and he says set your mind on things are above he is he's essentially telling you yes you can choose you have the ability to choose what you dwell on and that's not to say that we might not struggle with invasive thoughts or we deal with like well sometimes my mind wanders sometimes i think about things i don't mean to think about if you're someone who struggles with anxiety or worrying you might know like well i don't i don't want to be worried i just am (laughs) so how what what do you mean choose to dwell on these other things well i think we can choose what we dwell on. You know, you can choose whether you maybe feed those thoughts that you have in the same way, not, I don't wanna speak too much to the anxiety thing just because I'm not somebody who struggles with that, so I'm not gonna, in this setting, tell somebody exactly how to deal with that. But if if I think about the context of temptation, you know, that, that doesn't mean I might not have what I would call like invasive thoughts or thoughts I don't like when I see something I'm approached with something. But do I choose to kind of let that control my mind? Do I choose to let that kind of lead me down that path? Or do I recognize those for what they are? And do I fight that? So it starts with our mindset. That's what I'm getting at from those first uh, three or four chapters. And he says at the, in verse four, when Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we, we have faith in Christ. We have faith in Christ's resurrection. So we have faith both uh, in, in his ability to work in our lives now and also in the future. Um, it's kind of this idea that, you know, he... He starts by saying, hey, you are saved, so act this way, which is important to remember because he's, he's not saying that, hey, if you, if you act perfect enough, then you can earn some new life in Christ. But he's saying, if you're already a Christian, you have new life in Christ. You, you have the gospel. You've been obedient to the gospel. If you have that already, then this is how you should live. So, again, starts with that, moves towards kind of how we should live if that is true for us. So... Someone else go ahead and read for us verse 5, 6, and 7.
2: Therefore, put to death the members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in the in.
0: Thank you. So he starts by saying, put to death these your members which are on the earth. And he lists all these kind of different sins and behaviors we'll talk about in a second. like if you just think about the strength of the language he's using there, he says, put to death. Like that's that's harsh. That's strong. That is that is there's no him hon about with that. What is I'm gonna throw this out to you guys because I have a few questions I'll throw out as we get along here. But if we think about just the strength of his language, what does it mean to put to death say uncleanliness? How do I put to death uncleanliness? What does that look like? All good answers. End, that
2: behavior.
0: End it, yeah. And you'll notice it says, "I want us to understand." I guess when I think of really just the the level to which he's saying it. You know, he's saying, don't ever go back to it. Don't take a break from it. Don't take a half measure with this kind of stuff. Don't mess around with it. Don't halfway kind of try to temporarily step away from it. He, he's really suggesting almost radical action about sinful behavior within yourself. He said, put that to death. End it. Step away from it. Don't let yourself be affected by it. Nip it in the bud, I heard somebody say. Don't let it even start to take its effect on you. Let alone be controlled by it. And if we think about that list that he he has, he says fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, with which is idolatry. Fornication and uncleanliness we could treat as similarly. Um, the the, uh, the scriptures in these letters they use this phrase uncleanliness or uncleanness. Uh, this translation says a lot which is kind of an odd way of talking about certain things, but we do the same thing, right? Filthy language, dirty movies, dirty jokes, you know, we, things that are inappropriate, things that are corrupt, things that are not good. I mean, that's, pretty, that's a pretty self-explanatory concept, at least to me, if you think about it. But they're referring to actions, um, how we talk, how we interact with people, the things we see, the things we kind of take in, right? The media we consume, maybe. And then he also says, he also condemns passions, desires, and covetousness. So he's condemning certain actions, sinful actions, but also sinful, perhaps, feelings, sinful desire. And he adds this phrase at the end of the verse which is idolatry? What do we normally think of when we think of idolatry? Set, set, uh, set Colossians aside for a second. When I, just say, when I say the word idolatry, what comes to mind? That's where I was started. That's exactly how my brain works. Like, well, idolatry, idols. <laughs> um, graven images, idols, yeah. Probably like little gold statues or something the Egyptians would do, right? <laughs> That's what I always think. I mean, or we're, we're talking to Romans. We know the Romans had all these different gods and all these different altars and all these different temples. But what's kind of interesting is he takes this concept, with th- which they would be very familiar with, right? If we think about the context of the letter of Colossians being written to the church at Colossae, being in the Roman Empire, being surrounded by people who worship gods of the sea and gods of war and gods of fertility and being surrounded by what you and I would think of as idolatry, all those physical things like altars, like sacrifices, like graven images, like idols, the worship of, literally the worship of idols he says passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry that's kind of interesting that's kind of that's kind of different than what we would normally think of it's probably different than what they would have thought of, thought of it as at least on the surface and he's if you if you read what he's saying he doesn't say any desire is covetousness i mean he's not just saying if you want something that's a sin But if you want something to the point of covetousness or envy, and I I really like how he says passion or evil, if you want something so much that it consumes you, well, now it's idolatry. Now that's idolatry. Even if you're not worshiping another god, if you're not kneeling in prayer to it and offering meat to it, but if you want something so much that it has consumed your personality and your lifestyle and your existence, that's idolatry it's kind of funny, we have a different word for that in our own culture. Greed. That's it. Greed. Greed. Addiction. Same thing. Obset- yeah. Obsession. The first thing I thought of, and I guess this is just maybe a little bit of counseling background, but the first thing I thought of was addiction, because if you, if your d- people can become addicted to all sorts of different things that are sometimes not even themselves negative things, I know a lot of times when we think of addiction, we think of things like drugs. Okay, yeah, never... Don't just dabble into drugs. I'm not going to advocate for that. But you know what? Actually, I take that back. How many of of y'all have medicine you take every morning? (laughs) We're a little bit of an older crowd tonight, right? You probably got something you take every morning. If you've ever had surgery, you've had a hip replacement, knee replacement, torn a tendon, they probably give you something to take for that after the fact. So even then, I'm not going to... I'm not going to tell you, if you have that hip replacement surgery, boy, you got to go through it full-blooded awake, and you better not take a thing when you're back. You know, He wouldn't say that. He'd say, no, use it, use it appropriately. But if you desire that so much to the point that it consumes your identity, well, now, like just as a society or psychologically, we would call that addictive behavior. That's problematic. And so Paul says, if you, if you have anything that you desire so much that it consumes you, passion, evil desire, covetousness, will now, now you've actually stepped into idolatry because you are letting that thing consume you and you're letting that thing take away from your time and your energy and your effort that should be focused on God. Something else if you think about it. Um, I was talking to somebody about this earlier this week, but really, how much, and this goes far outside of just the obsessive, addicted kind of things we're talking about, but how much negative behavior just spins from idle time? Uh, it's, uh, oh I cannot, my grandmother had an expression, and I can't think of it now. "Idle hands, the devils." Thank yeah. I knew somebody <coughs> would pick up what I was saying. So if we're really doing verse one and two of Colossians, we shouldn't really struggle with verse five as much, right? Remember how we talked about how it starts with our mind? And if you, ever, if you ever know somebody, again, I go through this, I think, just because I, when I was in school, some of my last courses was a lot of addiction counseling stuff, and so I guess that's where my brain goes. But if you've ever known someone who's an addict, and even if they've gotten to the point where they've like, gotten into legal trouble with their addiction, they don't just send them on their way and say, hey, go stop doing that and just go be a better person. <laughs> they probably have court-ordered rehab. Why? Because they're saying, I need you to probably correct the mindset that you had before you even got into this problem. Well, I'm just going to send you on your way and say, hey, uh, go be better. <laughs> Don't do it again. If that worked, they wouldn't be in the position they're in, right? So we, we know this principle to be true just in our everyday life with people we interact with. But, it, but Paul is really making the claim that this works with our faith, it works with our spiritual life just the same that if there's things we're struggling with, if we're battling fornication, uncleanliness, passion, desire, covetousness, he says, he doesn't just say, hey, stop wanting bad things. (laughs) He says, set your mind on things that are above, and then you can, then you can kind of tackle and deal with the physical and the actions and almost the tangible things, he said. But if you just try to go from one way of behaving and acting to another with never changing your mind or your viewpoint, you're going to have a really hard time. So he says, don't let your desires and passions and covetousness become idolatry. I heard somebody say, when uh, one thing becomes the ultimate thing, that's kind of the way they put it, it Thoughts, questions, comments? Input output so far.
2: With what you just said, the one thing that should become the ultimate thing is our desire to love and serve God. And idolatry is putting anything other than God first. Um, And so, you know, you go back and it talks about, you know, we we died, you know, being buried in the waters of baptism, you know, and it talks about we're we're hidden in Christ, you know, the, the kind of idea of being. Going back up in earlier verses, being hidden in a, the idea of being hidden in a tomb with Christ, mm-hmm. and we've got to, you know, these things will come between us and God. Anything that comes between us and God, it separates us from God. And, and, and idolatry is putting something in front of God, worshiping it <laughs> as a, a God. And mm-hmm. God says that He is a jealous God, and so it's a, a, a strong. Admonition to know who's first.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the importance of knowing who's first and not letting any of those things take precedence over the role God has in our life. Which again, if we consider the structure of Colossians as a letter, how much time did he spend in chapter one, at the end of chapter one, talking about the power and preeminence to use the word a few translation, use the preeminence is just a fancy word of saying the firstness of Christ. The priority Christ should have, you know, it goes, goes right back to those ideas that He started the letter with. And really, again, I guess just when I think about sort of dealing with these these sins, Paul talks about in verse five. Um, I go back to that language He uses, "put to death," because I think where people get into trouble is where we want to have like a. I'm going to make a weird reference here, but you. I don't – if anyone remembers when Facebook first came out – I was about in high school when Facebook first came out. So I ever thought of somebody on, – on your relationship status on Facebook, you could put uh, single in a relationship. And there's a third option that just said it's complicated. Does anybody remember the it's complicated – it might still be there. I don't know. But if anyone remembers the it's complicated relationship status on Facebook, n- nobody with a nice, good, healthy relationship had that on their bright – But a lot of times, we don't want to die to sin. We want to be in an it's complicated relationship status with sin. Well, we're not broken up. We're not going to admit we're together. But it's definitely not out of our life. (laughs) We're in an unhealthy middle ground. And so I think it's really, really clear to understand the gravity and the, the... I would almost say the radicalness which he says, put to death that which is fleshly, that which is on earth. He says fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. It's
1: it's still, on there. still an option? It's still oh I'm it. sure. <laughs> I'm sure. There's also like a whole bunch more than <laughs>
0: yeah, there's probably even more options now, truthfully. Is on again, off again an option yet? <laughs> That's what. That's what most people. That's why I've, I thought of it when I thought of high school, which is so perfectly symbolic of like how high schoolers think of relationships in my brain, <laughs> and for my memory at least. Relationship. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Yeah. Situationship. Yeah.
3: You know, things that get our attention a lot of times. We got to stop thinking about it. Like a but. woman's body. I don't well if they're teenagers they need to hear this do we anymore. need to cut the
0: recording off of this one or? <laughs> yeah
3: okay why do they look like that god created them like that when i was born and you didn't have a milk cow what how did you how did you live when they're talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem there in Genesis twenty-four, america 24. How are those people living? Christ said, if they're still sucking, they go have trouble hiding or moving along. So, now, I got another question about that. Let's go to that one. We keep looking, we can look at women and think about that body. How many men can throw their hip out to the side and set a 40 pound baby on the side and then hold their groceries on, in the other hand? Women can do that. God created that. So we should never look at it and make fun of it or evil thoughts.
0: I like your conclusion. I like where you took that. We'll stick with the last part. Yeah. Don't don't be lustful, have passions or evil desires. <coughs> <coughs>
1: <coughs> yeah.
0: He must increase. I must decrease. Yeah, yeah. That that ties really well with what Van was saying about just you know keeping the main thing the main thing, Um, and and not letting ourselves get sort of entrapped, you know, in in this in between where we want to live as Christians but we want to not totally kick sin out of our life. And uh, I mean, I remember when I was younger, kind of younger and less mature in my faith, having these conversations with um, my minister at the time about. Um, I think in the phase of life I was in, it was having to do with weekend activities. You know, I'll, I'll just encompass it all with that. We, I kind of lived in Dallas at the time. And he, he would have these conversations with me where he says, look, even if you're not necessarily doing things that you think are explicitly harmful, he says, you're putting yourself in a really, he says, it's a dangerous game you're playing. When you're hanging with the crowd you're hanging with and you're going to certain places, And even if you don't feel like you're crossing a line where Scripture sets the line, he says, you're playing a very dangerous game. And I was in this place spiritually where I was like, well, I don't think that's true. Like, I know my limits. I know what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. Like, I know I feel like I'm living within the confines of what i we're called to live. But as I, when I got out of that situation, as I reflect on it, he was absolutely right. Like there was absolutely choices I made that I would not have made and I put myself in those positions. And so that's really what I think of when he says put to death, like have a clean break with the things that are sinful in your life, with the people that cause you to sin in your life. I mean, I think about the, um, when he says if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, your eye causes you to sin, God, gouge it out. Sometimes I wonder if I, like, when I was younger, I read that as very figurative, like, okay, don't sin, got it. The older I get, sometimes I'm like, man, if I could cut off my hand and never be tempted again, I think I'd take that. (laughs) Like if like if I if I could say, I'm right-handed, take my left hand right now, and I would never be tempted by anything the rest of my life, I think I'd take that deal right now. But we have things in our life that might be causing us to sin. And he says, you know, put to death those things. So Verse six, he says, "Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience." Seems like a really strange turn, but I want us to look at a couple of verses that talk about God's wrath. I'm just looking at the clock, engaging how much more we've got to get through here. We'll look at someone read for us, Ezekiel 25:17. And then we'll read one from Romans in a moment. Ezekiel 25:17. Uh twenty-five seventeen, I believe. Not immune to typos, though, so
1: <laughs>
0: we'll take this journey together.
1: Uh, it says, I will execute great vengeance on them with a furious rebuke, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them.
0: So, Lord executes, v- in the context of this, by the way, I didn't want to read all of Ezekiel 25, But he's talking about, in in these part of Ezekiel, he proclaims what is called the oracles against the nations, And it talks about all these different countries that have disrespected God, that have rejected God, that have taken action against God's people. And he ends every single one of these. Like if you look back at, and I promise we'll do this quickly, but if you look at verse 11 of the chapter, I will execute my judgments upon Moab, and they shall know I am the Lord. If you look at verse 14, I will lay my vengeance on Edom by my hand. And he goes on, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord. And he ends all of these like kind of, uh, condemnations of the other, the other countries and the other people who did not follow god 's law as they will one day know that I am God when I take vengeance against them <laughs> Flip over to Romans one Romans 1 verse 26 through 28 Someone could read that for us and this might be one we 're a bit more familiar with than Ezekiel 25 Romans
2: well, this call, God gave me did change the natural use of the death which is a mismanager. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their love, one point of the men with men working which was unseemly and receiving in themselves that represents their error with death. And even as they did thank God and the knowledge God gave them over to rebel,
0: land to those which are not covered. So, uh don't want to just totally go down the rabbit hole of sexual morality. But the point I wanted us take away from that section of Romans is he says, those who have kind of uh, left the way that God had intended for them to be, it says he gave them over to their uh corrupt or debased mind, depending on your translation. Like he and really, if, if you read that section in its context, it talks about like, how the consequences of their actions was God's wrath on them for disobeying God. Um, Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And so he, in, he, he doesn't just say it will come in a future sense, but he almost has this, like, um, there's this ongoing tense. He says it is coming now. It is on the way now. It is something that is building and is happening now. And so he, he firmly believes and is saying that if you engage in these harmful activities, God's wrath will be upon you. And I think without getting too much into um, – not necessarily saying that when bad things ha- – when all bad things happen to the wrath of God. I'm not saying that. But if we think about specifically uh, the things we've been talking about, you know, unhealthy desires. Okay. How many people do you know in your life that have gotten themselves into trouble from unhealthy desires? I mean, don't get me wrong. I get it. There's good liars out there, too. They get away with it for years, but uh, the chickens come home to roost. <laughs> As Numbers says, your sin will find you out. Um, again, just going back, like I said, in my own kind of thought process, addict behavior, people who become so desirous of something that it controls their life, they harm people around them. Like that, That behavior eventually becomes harmful to people around you because... Because your priorities aren't in order, because your desires are not where they should be, because you're, 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 uh, what you want and what you need and your understanding of wants and needs are not in order. And so he says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And we'll, we'll, we'll move on just to stay on time here. Um, someone read for us verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. The whole section there, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. Thank you. So, verse 8, kind of like verse 5, should feel pretty self-explanatory, right? It seems pretty clear what he's asking there. He changes the imagery a little bit. Um, he softens it. Instead of saying, put to death, now he says, you know, put off these things. And then the, the, uh, the language there almost indicates, like, as if you would change your clothes. And the Bible has certainly used that expression before to talk about our sinful nature as filthy rags to God that we must be made clean or be made new. It says anger and wrath, which we'll kind of deal with as one, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. So now, again, talking about desire, it's talked about actions. Uh, these are still actions, but they're, they're also touching back again on that idea of your attitude or your perspective, Yes. It and therefore if it, if it grows, it can turn into all of those things Absolutely. Yeah, it it almost if we start with the one that we probably would like that we would not get in a discussion of whether it was sin or anything, but that like we would view the softest it would probably be anger, right? Because if I even said if I went one step kind of lower <coughs> than anger, <coughs> before you get angry, you just kinda of get upset, I almost say, right? It's not, is it a sin to be bothered by something emotional? No, of course not. I mean, Jesus showed emotion. He, would, he cried passionately in the garden. He certainly had a showed emotion in his confrontation with the, the money lenders in the temple, right? So we, in, I almost kind of challenge the English translation here, but we'll, we'll talk about what he means to put off these things in a second. But I, I would even say being angry is not itself a sin, But look at, uh, I'll tell you what, instead of saying, look at Matthew 5.22. Instead of starting a sentence with I think, I guess I could just try this instead. So, in the danger of judgment, I like that turn of phrase, even if it is kind of a bit of an older style of English speaking, because he says, anger itself, okay, problematic. I don't know if I'd call it sinful, but anger certainly leads to sin. And as uh, was pointed out, anger would lead to wrath. Anger leads to malice. It It can certainly lead to blasphemy or filthy language. Also true, and that's what I said, I don't. Well,
3: how you react. To
0: it. Yeah, yeah that how you handle being angry. I mean, it's the old saying that you know life is ten percent what happens to you, ninety percent how you deal with it. Um, I know that that's not the Bible, but. <laughs> if you let it consume you and exactly. dwell on it, it you're not able to let it go. Then that can lead to all those things
1: through
0: Absolutely. That that's a great tie back. (laughs) It is. But I mean, if you think about it, if you're angry, how can you love your neighbor as yourself? Or how can you turn the other cheek? Or how can you pray for those who persecute you if you're really someone who is consumed by anger? And so I want to be careful to say, I don't think this means it's sinful to get upset if something happens to you. I don't think that's true at all. But know that anger, even if you feel justified, can certainly lead to sin. I mean, if we, if, if, and that's why, I, again, I, I would say sometimes we get into that sin of, of pride of thinking, well, I have reason to be angry for my... Go ahead.
2: Ephesians 4.26 Be angry and do not sin.
0: Then uh, yes.
2: you beat me to it. Be
0: angry and sin not. Uh, yes.
2: Do not son go down on your wrath and then verse 27 kind of gives you the consequences of anger nor give place to the devil.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what it says. That's all you're doing is... Showing weakness and allowing the devil to work in you when you allow yourself. But I like how you brought it back to what we talked at the beginning that, you know, if you're upset by something, that's fine. Have, have your moment, be upset, but don't be consumed by it. Don't let it control you. Don't let it uh, turn into those uh, evil passions that we were kind of talked about earlier. And so then he also says uh, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language. Um, malice and blasphemy, and blasphemy in this context is not not typically what we, how we think of blasphemy. What it really means is to speak against it. And again, the original language kind of has this expression of like words meant to harm, kind of like malice, maliciousness. Uh, words meant to be harmful or hurtful. I'm sure we know people, maybe we've been that person at times. I'm sure you've heard somebody speak in such a way that they very clearly meant to do harm. They were probably speaking out of anger, (laughs) right? I like that you brought up Ephesians 4.20, Ben. Be angry and sin not. So put off all of these things. And then I would love that this gets special mention. Um, we, we would think a lot of what he was saying, blasphemy, filthy language is sort of the language of the tongue, sins of the tongue. Kind of along the lines of what James would talk about. But he also says, do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man... And, of course, he says, in accordance with the image of uh, him who was created in him. I love that this gets special place because if you think of all the verses that talk about, not just, I mean, obviously Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But if you think about all of the the verses that have to do with God and God's truth and God being faithful, God being truthful, God being, uh, his word is truth, right? Jesus said that if God's word is truth and if God is faithful, Christians are to be truth-telling people. And I was just, again, kind of thinking about this specifically in a Christian context. I I love that this gets set aside, and he specifically says, do not lie to one another. And he's talking to the church, you know. Um, I was thinking about this one time. This—I can't remember the exact circumstance, and I don't have time to talk about it even if I did. But when I was younger, and I was dealing with something— and when you're in, like, that middle school, high school phase where you, like, know that something's wrong, but you're not, you know, you're not, like, mature enough to probably really fully confront it in the appropriate way all the time. And I found myself, like, I remember my dad just telling me. one he said, it's one thing he said, if you, you know, if you're lying to other people, if you're lying to the world about X, Y, or Z, and he said, like, you're lying to your family, or, or you start lying to your friends about this. Like, he said, what are you doing? And I just remember it really kind of blown my 13-year-old mind it was over something really dumb, you know, like taking pencils from school or something. <laughs> but just the, the, the gravity that he kind of put on that. And I think there's something to that with Paul saying this. He says, don't lie to one another. Like, if God's word is truth, Christians at least to each other should be truth-telling people. Like, like we should be people who represent the truth, it, at least to one another. When I think about this in sort of a ministry context, and we'll, we'll wrap this up really quickly.
1: There is really
0: few things that can be as harmful as your ability to carry out God's word, as is our mission, as not being an honest person. I know when we list sins, lying probably isn't in the top three most of the time. You know, we think of horrible things like murder and adultery, and those are bad, don't get me wrong. When we think specifically about the context of the mission Jesus gave all of those who would follow him before he left this planet to go out to all the world, I mean, when we go, we, we go and we teach by our words and our actions, and if your words and your actions aside from that convey the message that people can't trust you, how are you going to be effective at that? And for most people, I mean, I don't, I've had many people tell me that, like, well, I'm somebody that, like, when I've lost trust with somebody, it just takes a long time to bring it back. I've heard a lot of people say that, and I've never heard anybody say, yeah, people just lie to me all the time, and I get it <laughs> like I get that, that. I get that some people, you know, they're a little more cautious than others. But when we think about being Christians and representing God to the world, we get, that's, I mean, honesty has got to be up there. You know, if God's word is truth, Christians should be truth-telling people. And like I said, I, I don't think there are there are very few things that are as harmful to your ability to personally evangelize and spread the gospel as becoming known as someone who is untrustworthy. And that's really it. Um,
1: it's hard to bear each other's burdens if you don't know what the burdens are.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's a great point because I've got about probably 40 seconds to make it. But when we were talking either in – when I was doing Second Peter and his band was doing Jude, we were talking about uh, how the church can really only be destroyed from within. Boy, does anybody want to be a part of a church with people who can't trust each other? I mean I don't. <laughs> I don't. So, you know, if we view ourselves as a spiritual family, certainly uh, we should be able to be not lying and being trustworthy to one another, as Paul says in verse 9. In verse 11, really, I would sum up kind of by saying we are all on a level playing field as far as that goes. He just speaks against all the divisions they would have, and we'll, we'll touch on that
1: when we start next week. The invitation song tonight is going to be one hundred thirty-four. Uh, one hundred thirty-four will be the invitation song. Let's um, see. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Judges chapter six. Uh, that's kind of will be the base text for where we're going to be looking at tonight. Judges chapter six. So, if you remember this past Sunday, um, I did a short little message about faith and the kind of the importance of it. And tonight I wanted to kind of dig into that just a little bit more, and I wanted to use Gideon as a pretty good example of that. Because whenever we think of people of really good faith, we think of like Abraham, Moses, you know, Hebrews, I believe it's 13, the the hall of faith. But I think we leave Gideon out. It's not because it's not because of he didn't have or it's not because of he had great faith. It's he was more relatable to us. He is faith. He had faith, but it was more on the weaker side, and we get to see it grow. Um, Judges chapter six. I'm going to start in verse twelve, um, and we'll go from there. Uh, it says, "Let me find And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, "The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor." Gideon said to him. O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Now, if you know the story of Gideon, um, the children are oppressed because of their sin. And Gideon was found in a wine press threshing wheat trying to hide from the Midianites so he's not captured or killed. And in this, in this uh, scene, the angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him that, you're going to be the next, next judge that delivers the people from oppression. And Gideon's like, how, how am I going to deliver the people? Uh, and where is, where is God in all this? Like We are being oppressed by these people. If God is here for us, then why hasn't he protected us? Where is his miracles? And so in his weak faith, he uh, uh, Gideon questions the protection that God provides. And he also doubts God's ability to use him to save his people. If you drop down to verse 15, uh, ver- Judges six, fifteen, 15, uh, it says, so he said to him, "O my lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the weakest, and I, and I am the least in my father's house." So here we see Gideon doubting God's ability to use him as a person to save Israel. And again, we know that Gideon has faith, but we see it's weak in these, in this beginning of Judges. And then, if you go over to verse thirty-six um uh, Judges chapter 6 verse 36 It says so Gideon said to God if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said look, ha- as you have said look I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor if there is dew on the on the fleece and it is dry on all the ground then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said and as we know God um, granted Gideon that request and proved that. And then it also, if you drop down just a little bit, down to verse 39, Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. So we see here Gideon had faith but it was weak, and so he questioned God, he doubted him, he, test, he even tested him to prove, because he didn't have enough faith to believe that God was able to do all that he had said. And now we sit here and we look, like, how could Gideon possibly do that? How could you question God? But how often do we do the same thing in our own lives? We may, we may not be questioning God's ability to use us to you know, lead the country to save America, but how often do we think and say, I'm not good enough for God. I have done X, Y, and Z, so God can never use me. Uh, I am broken. I cannot possibly be what God needs. But we see that God can use anybody to fulfill his plan. He has a plan for each one of us. We just have to have that faith in it. And as Hebrews 11:1 1 says, um, I'm just going to kind of, I may misquote it, so forgive me. Hope is the evidence of things not seen, but yet it's hoped for. We cannot um, we cannot have faith in things that we see. It kind of defeats, defeats the point of faith. If we see it, we know it exists, and we can believe that. Faith is more for the the things that we cannot see. We cannot see God. We cannot see his plans, but we have to have enough faith to know that it is there, that he has something planned for us. And that's where it really comes into play. So I ask you tonight, look at your own life. Look at your own faith. Where is it? Is it a little bit more like Gideon when he started out, a little bit weaker, where you have to, where you doubt yourself, you doubt God, you have to test him? Or is it a little bit on the stronger side? Do you know that you can have full faith in God because of you, you trust in him? If you need help building up your faith, we are here for you. We would love to study with you, pray for you, whatever it is you need. If there's anything that we can do for you, why don't you come and stand as we sing 134.